Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue our ongoing verse-by-verse study through this New Testament epistle, likely the earliest epistle from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Uh, scholars are split on whether it's this epistle or the epistle to the church in Galatia as being his earliest, but we know because it is such an early epistle, it gives us great insight into the motivation and the heart of Paul early on in his life as a missionary apostle to the Gentile regions of the world. You know, one of my favorite forms of literature is that of Christian biographies. There's something about Christian biographies that really inspire and encourage me personally as I seek to pursue Christ and walk in faithfulness to him. It's amazing to read how other servants of the Lord in past decades and centuries and millennia have been faithful to the Lord in spite of difficulties and hardships and trials, and the splash of their lives is still being experienced through the ripples as they have gone out through the centuries. But one of my favorite and probably the most inspiring to me Christian biography that I ever read is by Elizabeth Elliot, written about her martyred husband, Jim Elliot. The book is Shadow of the Almighty. And what made this particular biography especially powerful for me was that it wasn't just the biographer's words about the person, but much of this book actually contains excerpts from Jim Elliot's own letters and journal entries in his personal journals as, as a missionary and even as a college student at Wheaton College. It is from this book that we get the record of Jim Elliot's most famous quote, and no doubt the theme from which he lived his life that led to him being martyred as a missionary in South America, these words, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This was just a 22-year-old college student that wrote that in his journal one day, and it's really the theme of his life. It gives us great insight. Someone's own words gives us great insight into what motivates them and drives them. This is especially true here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we read these very early words, the very early writings of the Apostle Paul, and I'm so thankful that last week Pastor Wade on short notice was ready in season and out of season to preach the word as he preached the first six verses of chapter two. If you missed last week's message, it was really the first of two sermons dealing with a section where Paul focuses in on marks of an authentic spiritual leader. Marks of an authentic spiritual leader. Now, the first six verses that Wade focused on really dealt with negative aspects, things that a spiritual leader should not do, something you should not see in an authentic leader of Christian people. Now, let me just summarize those six verses real quickly. You see this on the screen. First of all, a genuine Christian leader does not come in vanity or with empty purposes. No, he comes with purpose, great purpose. Verse 2, an authentic spiritual leader doesn't cave to conflict, doesn't kowtow to persecution that may come against him. No, he's faithful even in the face of difficulty and hostility. In verse 3, we saw that a faithful spiritual leader doesn't work to deceive people through error and falsehood. Also, verse 4 and 5, we saw that an authentic spiritual leader does not speak in such a way 
to be a people pleaser, that he might curry favor with others through flattering words. And then finally, an authentic spiritual leader is a trustworthy spiritual leader because he's not in it for the money. He's not in it for the personal glory or fame. No, rather, he's in it for the glory of God. Now, I look at these negative descriptions Paul lists here, line by line, point by point, and it's almost like it's a description of the modern prosperity TV preacher. This is exactly how they live their lives. And you almost want to shake those who have become beguiled by these TV charlatans and say, wake up. These people are only in it for themselves. In a nutshell, what the first six verses describe is the integrity with which Paul and his missionary team came and operated in the city of Thessalonica, even if it was for a short season. While these other fly-by-night philosophers who made their way through Thessalonica hawking their wares were the exact opposite. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, they were on the up and up. But as we turn our attention now to the second half of this section that focuses on marks of a spiritual leader that is authentic, that is genuine, that is real, what we'll discover is that in contrast to the negative attributes which should be absent from their lives, we will see some positive attributes which should characterize their lives. Now, the goal and the purpose for which they conducted themselves the way they conducted themselves from verses 1 and following are summarized and seen really in verse 12, namely that the people they are investing in, the people they are preaching and living among, would walk worthy. That's the title of my message, Walk Worthy. And we'll see that as we go through the text today. So look with me in your Bibles as we read verses 7 through 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Bible says this, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, what Paul displays in these verses is really the twofold commitment that we see throughout his ministry and the twofold commitment we should see in any legitimate ministry. First of all, to the word of God, and secondly, to the people of God. That's the two pillars of Christian ministry and and Christian leadership. Leadership to the Word of God and to the people of God. Now, what we see here in these two commitments is a commitment to, one, truth, and two, a commitment to love. Both of these commitments are absolutely essential for legitimate kingdom impact. In Ephesians chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul is outlining the spiritual gifts of leadership in the church. He gives several positions or offices of leadership that exist within the New Testament. He, he describes 
their ministry with these same words. Look on the screen in Ephesians 4, verse 11 and following. Paul says that Jesus has given to the church apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saint for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. How? Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. You see that? These twin priorities, truth and love. Authentic spiritual leaders love God's word and love God's people. Truth and love. Now, there are some Christian leaders that you may have experienced and known of who champion truth and display a great concern for the word of God, but they may display very little love. On the other side of the coin, there are those who are committed to displaying love and affection for the people of God, yet they have a very minuscule regard for the truth. It's imperative that both of these qualities exist side by side, which is why I believe the New Testament portrays and why our church practices a polity of plural eldership, plural pastoral leadership, because there's not a single pastor anywhere in the world that can access both of these attributes together accurately. That's why we have seven godly men ordained by God to serve as pastors or elders of this church. Sometimes we've described it as the combination of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? You need the peanut butter, the protein, the nutrition, and the, you need the jelly, the sweetness. I'll let you decide which elders are peanut butter and which elders are jelly. Interestingly, in our focal text, Paul uses the plural pronouns to describe their shared pastoral approach. We, he says, were gentle among you. We were ready to share with you. We work night and day. We proclaimed the gospel. We exhorted you. It is a shared ministry they had together, and as such, it was a framework for mutual accountability to display truth and love. Now, as we look at these, first, these six verses uh, from, from verse 7 through verse 12, I want us to see how Paul's team conducted themselves in Thessalonica and come around really three truths I want us to see together. The first one is this. I want us to consider the conduct of their lives, the conduct with which they lived their lives among the Thessalonians. And if you noticed in the text, Paul used two metaphors to describe their conduct, two very familiar patterns all of us are familiar with, the pattern of a mother and the pattern of a father. These metaphors he uses to describe their conduct among them, which demonstrate these two pillars, truth and love, a high regard for the word of God and a high regard for the people of God. First, he describes how they had the gentleness of a mother, the gentleness of a mother. Notice again, verse seven, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now that's quite a picture, isn't it? I don't know if in my masculinity, (laughs) I would be quite as eager as Paul is here to describe his ministry as a nursing mom. But that's exactly what he does. He uses this powerful image, this caring image. It's quite profound. The image of a mother bringing her infant baby to her breast and nursing the child. What a picture. And the operative word here is the word 
gentle. We were gentle among you. And here's the thing, as profound and as deep as a father's love is and should be towards his children, there's nothing quite like the love of a mother for her child. And certainly this kind of leadership would have been completely foreign to those in Thessalonica, the false teachers and the philosophers who came through town on a regular basis. You see, the the standard for worldly leaders is this, to accomplish their agenda through people. The, the goal of godly leaders is to see Christ's maturity in people. In people. And this all-encompassing term here, term here of gentle, they were gentle, means kind. Would you agree this is a character trait that is sorely missing in our world, even among Christians? Gentleness, kindness, Paul uses some follow-up words to describe their motherly approach to ministry. In verse 8, he says this. Look at verse 8. So, being affectionately desirous of you. Now, this term here that's translated affectionately desirous, this is the only place in all the New Testament that this Greek term is used, right here. And the sense of the word is that it's somebody that is passionate and earnest for someone else. Actually, as I studied, I discovered this term would actually appear on the tombstones of infant graves. And it was the description of a parent who longed for the child, who was earnest for the child who had passed. This is affectionately desirous. Then in verse 9, he describes their motherly approach to ministry. He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. Isn't that a great description of a mom? (laughs) Working night and day, labor and toil. Friends, there's so much work that moms do that goes completely unnoticed. Somehow the dishes are magically washed and put away in the cupboard. Somehow the clothes are mysteriously washed and folded. There's so much work and labor that moms do that often goes completely Unnoticed, And this is exactly the way Paul says we labored and we toiled and we worked night and day among you. Why? So we would not be a burden to you. I'll tell you, friends, in a little moment of honesty here, times when I've been the most peeved and annoyed as a Christian leader is on the unfortunate occasions when I've worked alongside folks who felt certain things in ministry while they were beneath them. There are certain things as a leader I just shouldn't be expected to do. So, for instance, if we have a work day at the church where we roll up our sleeves and we get dirty and we work, sweat a little bit, and those folks are nowhere to be found. You need to know that's not the attitude of those that God's given this church at this season. I'm so thankful for the sweat ethic that your staff puts in here. Many of you probably aren't even aware that our church custodian, who we pay, has been out for the better part of two months because she's recovering from knee surgery. And among others, our staff has come alongside, unbeknownst to you, to take out the trash, to vacuum the carpets, to sweep the floors, not because I asked them to do it, but because they know this commends the message we're proclaiming. We work, we toil, 
We labor so as not to be a burden to you, but so that it might commend our message to you. So Paul uses this metaphor here of a mother, one who's kind and gentle, one who's passionate and earnest for others, one who works and is hardworking. The other metaphor Paul employs in this section is to illustrate the conduct of their lives is through not only the gentleness of a mother, but through the guidance of a father. The guidance of a father. Look at verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. You see, the role of a father is somewhat different than the role of a mother, isn't it? And good spiritual leaders demonstrate these fatherly qualities as well. A father knows he's got a responsibility to guard his children. He's got a responsibility to protect the family. And he often does this through the guidance he gives through instruction and motivation. Three words Paul uses in verse 12 to describe this fatherly guidance. First, the word exhorted. Exhorted. That word means to come alongside. Jesus actually used a noun form of this word to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. This is what spiritual leaders ought to do with their people. They come alongside. They get up close to guide. The next word he uses, not only we exhorted you, we encouraged you. And this word for encouragement is typically used with regard to encouraging in times of loss or grief. It's used in John 11 to describe Mary and Martha's neighbors as they are being consoled, same word, encouraged by their neighbors at the death of their brother Lazarus. So this is a kind of compassionate uplifting in seasons of stress or burden. So he says, listen, we, like a father, we encouraged you. We exhorted you. Thirdly, he charged them. He charged them. Some English translations translate this word imploring. What is this? It's, it's providing course correction. There are times fathers have to come alongside their children and say, we need a little course correction. It's the idea of giving a warning, a verbal warning, a clear direction of how to go. We charged you. So with all three of these words, he's describing their fatherly guidance among them. This is really within the realm of instruction. We instructed you, the delivering of truth. So again, we see these two twin qualities, a commitment to the truth of God and the commitment to the people of God, truth in love. So that's the first thing I want us to consider. Here's the second thing. It leads right into it, and that is the content of their message. Not only the conduct of their lives, but the content of their message. Twice in these six short verses, Paul says exactly what the content of their message is. The gospel, the euangelion, the good word, the good message. First in verse 8, notice what it says. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, this week in my time of study, as I considered several expositions of this passage, several of them really focused in, almost exclusively so, on the section of that verse where it says, we shared our very lives with you. And they really made a point of pointing out the fact that Paul and Silas and Timothy didn't just speak, but they were involved in the people's lives. Now, the word translated selves there is the Greek word pasuke, 
from which we get our English word psychology. So our souls is normally how this word is translated. We shared our very souls with you, the psyche of who we are. And from there, the, the exposition that I've read would, would really focus on the practical application to a spiritual leader to be encouraged to share his life with those he leads. So such as eating meals together, having people over for dessert and coffee, getting involved in the nitty-gritty of others' lives, going in congregants' homes, and otherwise being personally involved. Now, all these things are, of course, included in what is meant when Paul says we shared our very lives with you, we shared our souls with you. But in the description here, there's almost this tacit assumption that the gospel is going to be preached. With this description, there's almost this presumed expectation that, in fact, the clear gospel teachings are being clearly articulated. But I can tell you, after nearly three decades of full-time ministry, we would be wrong in making that assumption. There are many I have seen in so-called ministry who have a predominant emphasis on sharing their lives on getting deep in the nitty-gritty of people's lives that never speak the gospel. Listen, we'd know coffee and donuts don't change people's lives. Only the gospel changes people's lives. Coffee and donuts is a vehicle through which we speak the word. In fact, notice verse 9. For you remember, brothers... Our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You see, the real emphasis here for Paul and his team is that they shared in labor, they shared in work, they shared in toil so that the message of the gospel would be received without prejudice, would be received without suspicion. Now, in terms of the expectation of modern-day church folk, how do we know? Our pastors love us. How do we know our pastors really care for us? Friends, hear how you will know I don't love you anymore when I quit studying the Bible to preach it to you. You can rest assured I don't love you if I don't do that. Preaching the gospel is primary. It is how life change happens. In fact, the word there, we proclaim the gospel to you. It's the Greek word caruso. And it was used in first century Greek language to describe a messenger, a herald who had a message from the king who would go into the city square and he would pronounce, this is the message of the king. He was just the spokesperson. Friends, this is what the modern day preacher should be. He's just a spokesperson. He goes into the Word of God and into the prayer closet of his own soul, and he seeks a word from God to deliver it to the people. This is love. Now, the content of their message, the gospel, was believable because of the conduct of their lives. Their lives corresponded to the message. Their lives were not at odds with it. It was not incongruous with each other. Don't miss this. The content is absolutely essential. You see, because they knew this message ultimately was a message of love. The gospel is a message of love. That God in his great love for us, though each of us have shaken our fists in the air, though each of us have spurned his affection towards us, 
by our own disobedience to his commands, we are separated from God. But God, in his great love for us, sent his only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, to die in our place, to take our punishment in our stead so that he could take our guilt and he could give us, through faith and repentance, his righteousness, thereby we could stand before a holy God declared not guilty and have everlasting life with him. Is this not love? Is this not a message of love? This is the gospel. It's the ultimate, most loving thing we can do for people is communicate this truth to them. And that really is to the third and final thing I want us to consider from the passage. Not only do we see the conduct of their lives and the content of their message, but finally the concern of their hearts. The concern of their hearts. We see their heart's concern in this overarching purpose for which they labored in verse 12. Look at it again. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul's shared concern with his team in Thessalonica was that they might walk in a manner worthy of God. And I can tell you that's the concern of your leaders here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church, that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. You know, every time someone comes and, and gives indication they would like to become a covenant member of Lookout Valley Baptist Church, either myself or one of our other elders walks through a time of interview with them where we dialogue with them and we hear their personal testimony of faith. We hear how they came to know the Lord. And then we ask them to do something. Would you sign our church's covenant? And I have in my office a whole slew of covenants that have been signed by people who have joined our church. What is, what is it that act communicating? These are the promises we make to each other in a Christian church. In other words, to walk in a manner worthy of God. Let me just show you just an excerpt from our church covenant, what we promise to each other. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. That's just one phrase from our covenant and promise we make to each other. And this is an expression of what Paul means here in 1 Thessalonians 2 of walking in a manner worthy of God. It has something to do with our behavior. Paul even said, you remember, we lived among you in holiness. You're witnesses. God is our witness. We lived holy lives. Now, this is not the only place that Paul mentions this concept of walking worthy of God. In fact, it's all through his epistles, this being the earliest. It, let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4. If you'll remember when we studied Ephesians a couple years ago, I told you that Ephesians is really two halves. The first half, chapters 1 through 3, have to do with doctrine, our belief. The second half, chapters 4 through 6, have to do with our behavior, our duty. And so the fulcrum of the book swings on chapter 4, verse 1. Notice what it says. I, therefore, because of all the truth I've just laid out, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walking worthy has to do with our behavior as Christians, how we live our lives in the world. He says the same thing to the church in Philippi. He says this, only let your manner of life, what do you think manner of life refers to? The way you behave, what you do, how you live, your free time. 
Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in the church of Colossae, he says the same thing. He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully, not partially, not 90%, fully pleasing to him. In September, we'll turn, Lord willing, to the book of 2 Thessalonians. And in that short three-chapter epistle, not once but twice, Paul refers to this idea of walking worthy. It's an overarching theme of all of his instruction to these churches and, by extension, to this church. We should walk in a manner worthy of our calling, worthy of God, worthy of the gospel, worthy of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It means that we live in such a way that our life fits with what we say we believe. It corresponds. It goes together. It should match. So if we believe we've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, friends, we should live that way. If we believe we've been forgiven of all sin and called to walk in holiness, we believe that, we should live that way. If we believe that we have hope beyond this dark and cruel world to a hope that lies beyond the grave, friends, we should live that way. People should be able to listen to what you say you believe and look at your lives and not say, hypocrite. (laughs) Now, by identifying this overarching purpose for them, he's once again distancing himself from the charlatans who were coming through town. You see, their primary objective for those was not that they grow up into Christ. Their primary objective was not that they walk worthy of God and his gospel. No, they were in it for whatever they could get, whether personal prestige or financial profit. The faithful spiritual leader, on the other hand, is not concerned about his personal ascendancy in the popularity polls. His concern is about the maturity of those God's given him to be over. And Paul concludes this section by again reminding them, and we'll get back to this again and again through this letter, of the hope we have in Jesus, the hope we have in his coming kingdom, the hope we have in his coming glory. And he does that by reminding them of their calling, of their election. Look again. At the end of verse 12, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you, what? Into his own kingdom and glory. And friends, in this, there is a reminder to them to once again raise your gaze from the here and now. Raise your gaze from what you see to look at the kingdom, to consider the glory of Christ. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, live your life with hope. Live your life with hope. Live life knowing who your king is. Jesus is your king. Live life knowing what kingdom you're living for. His kingdom. His glory. We are called into his own kingdom and glory. You know, one of the earliest Christian confessions of faith that can be found on record through the annals of history is very simple. It's three words in English. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is a very profound confession of faith for the first century Christians because in the Roman Empire, they were required to say, Caesar is Lord. There was something known in the 
in the Roman Empire as the cult of Caesar. That was that citizens were required to pay homage to Caesar as a god, to worship him as a god, to make sacrifices to him as a god. And Christians begin to say, no, (laughs) Caesar is not God. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. In fact, one of the very early church fathers, a disciple of the Apostle John, his name was Polycarp. At the age of 86 years old, he was brought before the Roman authorities and told, you must pronounce Caesar is Lord. And he said before them, Jesus is Lord. And he was martyred because of that profession. In fact, this is the exact accusation that was brought against Paul and his missionary team when they were in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17 as we find the record of the planting of this church. There they are in Thessalonica having left Philippi under much duress and riots. They come into Thessalonica. They're preaching the same gospel and they experience the same hostility and mob rebellion. They're brought before the civil authorities, before those who literally hold their lives in their hands. And notice the accusation brought against them in Acts 17.7. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. No kidding. (laughs) Jesus is king. And Paul's saying to these churches in Thessalonica, who knew about this accusation brought against them, walk worthy of the kingdom. So in fact, fidelity to their king, these Thessalonians, they said, we can't do that. We can't bow to Caesar. We won't bow to government pressure. We won't bow to anyone but our king, Jesus. And this allegiance got them persecuted. Now that's ancient history, right? That's 2,000 years ago. Surely, Uh, nobody would experience this type of hostility or persecution because they hold allegiance to Jesus today in our modern, highly evolved states, especially not here in the great U.S. of A. Well, let me give you a recent example of one church that did. The name of the church is Falls Church. It's located in a town named after the church, Falls Church, Virginia. That old church was established in the mid-1700s. It's actually where George Washington, our first president, served as a layman, as a vestryman. Now, you need to know what happened. Fast forward 200 years, and the denomination that Falls Church is a part of, the Episcopal Church of America, is spiraling downward in theological liberalism. It's been thoroughly infected by unbiblical concepts and ideas. However, Falls Church did not drift with its denomination. In 1979, they called one John Yates to be their pastor. John Yates was known as one who was thoroughly evangelical, had a very evangelistic focus on missions and discipleship. He was one who held a high view of Scripture, held to the inerrancy of the Bible, and perhaps of greatest controversy was he maintained the Bible's view of human sexuality and marriage. This got him out of sorts with the Episcopal Church. Now, under his leadership, the church grew significantly, so much so they had to build this great auditorium on this very historic property. But as the years continued on, Pastor John Yates and Falls Church became increasingly out of step with the theologically liberal Episcopal denomination. It all came to a head in the early 2000s when the presiding Bishop Lee 
of the Episcopal denomination took the historic Falls Church to secular court. And the denomination won. As a result of that court decision, the 4,000 members of Falls Church as a congregation, they were kicked out of that historic facility that they had inhabited for two and a half centuries. Further, the church had close to $2 million in their various ministry and missions accounts that was awarded to the denomination and taken from them. Even the, the silver communion plates they used for the Lord's Supper was stripped from their possession and handed over to the denomination. On May 13, 2012, they held their final service in the facility they built under Pastor John Yates' leadership. So you literally have the next day a 4,000-member church with no property, no money, and no resources with which to do ministry. This happened right here in the good old U.S. of A. You'll be glad to know they continue to press on as a faithful evangelical church to this day. But you need to know something. I love every square inch of this property. Since coming here in 2007, I've led our church to go through two capital campaigns where we've raised over a million dollars to update every square inch of this campus. We've purchased not one, not two, but three pieces of property contiguous with this church plant. But friends, as much as I love every brick of this building, as much as I've sweated and toiled and labored for this facility that we have the joy of stewarding and meeting in, we know We are living in a day when we could lose it. If we do not buy into culture's idea of human sexuality, if we do not cave to society's fluid view of marriage and gender, what even is that? Though we will be completely consistent with the Christian message throughout two millennia, this type of statement, will be construed as hate speech in our world. And we must be ready to stand as the church in Thessalonica stood and say, government is not God. Jesus is Lord. There will be times, believer in Jesus, when we find things in the Christian life become difficult, we will live in such a way that we are going against the current and that current is becoming increasingly swift against us. But friends, there is hope because Jesus is Lord. There is hope because He rules and reigns. There is hope because there is a coming kingdom and a coming king that we are a part of. And regardless of what this world throws at us as a church, as us as His people, as Christians, friends, we can live with hope, and we can live in such a way among people who are strangely different than us. And they will say, well, at least I'll give them this. Their message matches their lives. There's consistency there. This is the essence of what it means to walk worthy, to walk with the understanding that Jesus is king and that we're doing all things, not for the proclamation of a preacher or the ascendancy of a church, 
It's all for Jesus. It's all for him. And Paul labored to that end, and may we labor to that end as well. And that leads to my last thought. Walking worthy is to live in such a way that we remember who our king is. Let's go to him in prayer.